if you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we are picking up our study in 2 Samuel again this morning. Uh, so uh, chapter 11 is where we're going to be at. If you need one of the pew Bibles, open up to page 244. 2 Samuel chapter 11 or page 244 in our pew Bibles. Now, we've been studying 2 Samuel for quite some time. We've been in it since the month of September, and likely we'll be in it probably through the month of April. Uh, 2 Samuel 11 is probably the most well-known chapter of David's life, um, next to 1 Samuel chapter 17. The irony, however, is that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David is our hero. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is our villain. And, and that stark contrast can be seen no clearer than just in the way the chapters open up. If you recall how chapters 9 and 10 opened it up, opened up, David was seeking to show steadfast love to those around him. As chapter 11 opens up, David is seeking to satisfy his sensual lust. In other words, as we get into the second half of 2 Samuel, the good times are over. Right? Uh, we had a happy run, those first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, but those days are over. David was a model king, right? He regularly pointed us to Jesus. Victories, has said love, faithful to God's commands, rejoicing in his promises, making the worship of Yahweh central to the nation. It seemed like the gravy train is never going to end until it does, right here in 2 Samuel 11. And it is a train wreck. Now, oftentimes, if you've been in the church long enough and you've heard this passage preached, as I have, uh, 2 Samuel 11 is preached as a cautionary warning against the dangers and horrors of sexual sin, specifically adultery. And applications are drawn from the details of the text, right? Uh, David's abuse or David's absence from his duty, uh, the lingering look that he gives, David's pursuit of Bathsheba, or Bathsheba. And, and even the verbs indicate this, right? He sees her, he asks about her, he sends for her, he takes her. And then finally, obviously, David's misuse of power in trying to cover it all up. And, yeah, it makes sense. It's understandable, right? As I was reading it, that seems so obvious. That's got to be the point of the chapter. But then again, the destructiveness of adultery is obvious to everyone, yet that doesn't stop thousands of men and women in this country from torpedoing their lives and their families. So just because something is obvious, it doesn't mean that's probably the most important thing. I mean, you don't need me, Christian or not, you don't need me to tell you adultery is bad, do you? Right? I don't think any of you are on the fence about that issue this morning, are you? Right? I don't think any of you are thinking, man, Pastor Rick, I'm kind of thinking adultery, but I don't know. Should I go to coffee and conversation and talk about it? Right? That, that is something we clearly know that that is crazy. It's destructive. It's wrong. You don't have to grow up in the church to understand that. So while the dangers of adultery are obviously in the text, sometimes the obvious thing distracts us from the actual important thing. And it's the important thing that can oftentimes prevent the obvious mistakes and the obvious sins, in this case for David, adultery. So if we want to avoid those obvious mistakes, whether it's of sexual sin or some other life-destroying choice, we do well to learn the important lesson so that we can avoid the obvious mistakes. Here it is. Here it is of chapter 11. We are foolish to think that we can hide our sin from God. Try as we might, our sin cannot be covered up, it cannot be glossed over, it cannot be hidden, cannot be ignored. 
God sees all. God knows all. That, that truth, God's omniscience, omniscience is referring to God's nature, his all-seeing, all-knowing nature, ought to cause two contradictory emotional experiences in you right now. The first one, probably the obvious one to you, is fear, right? Uh, fear that God knows all and that God sees all. It makes a lot of sense. Nothing you do, no motivation, no desire, no action escapes his attention. No matter how try, no matter how you might try to spin your selfishness, no matter how you may deny your culpability, no matter how you might try to blame, shift, rationalize, justify, weave, or dodge from your sin, God knows the truth of it, and he has you dead to rights. So that's the first emotional response. That's probably pretty typical when we realize, I mean, God sees everything and knows everything. The second, that may not be as intuitive, but certainly is there, if you think about it, especially if you understand the gospel, is actually comfort and joy. Now let me explain that to you. When you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Nothing you do, no motivation, no desire, no action escapes his attention. No matter how small your act of selflessness, no matter how others might overlook you, no matter how little you think of your service, your caring, your giving, your loving, your sharing, God knows it all, sees it all, and loves you for it. Whether you are the widow who only has two pennies to give or you are the king who thinks he's above the law, God sees all our actions and weighs them accordingly. You see, the, the center of gravity in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is not with the popular warnings against sexual sin and adultery as, as important as those are. But the center of gravity here in this chapter is with the purpose of the author which is trying to get us to ask that and answer that question ourselves. Do I really think I can get away with my sin? Do I really think God does not see me? Do I really think he doesn't know? See, that's where the center of gravity is in this chapter. Now, before we jump into the chapter, I, I want to give you a, a little bit of a tip. I know we have a lot of um, serious Bible students in this church. So this is a freebie, has nothing to do with the sermon, but very important. Whenever you're studying a chapter of scripture, it's important to know the context, right? That's what we talked about. And that context can help you discern what the chapter's all about. In this case, and, and, and typically, most chapters will serve three kind of contexts or purposes. So let me put them on the screen behind me. Number one, it's the immediate context. That's what we just talked about. 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's a continual reminder that our sin cannot be hidden from God, no matter who you are, even if you're the king, right? That's the immediate context. But every chapter, every verse is within a broader context, and we have to ask, what's that broader context so that we know we're interpreting correctly? So 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is called the canonical context, the canon, also serves as explanatory for why the rest of this book of 2 Samuel, chapters 13 to 20, it's just disharmony, conflict, uh, division, and heartache. It's all because of David's sin here in this chapter. And so that's why the rest of the half, this half of the book, it's just so different than the first half. But there's a third context that's particular to us as Christians. Why do I say as Christians? Because remember, before the Old Testament was the Old Testament, it was the Hebrew Bible, right? And so what I don't want is there for a good Jewish man or woman to sit in one of the, our services and say, hey, man, that's good. 
Because so far, any Jewish man or woman will say, that's right, you cannot hide your sin from God. And that's right, this explains why everything was so hard for Israel later on. Okay, we got to preach Christian scripture as Christian scripture. We need to go to the third context. It's called the, the Christological context. Why is this chapter here? It's to tell us and remind us that even David cannot be finally fully trusted, that you still need to look for another king. That's what these chapters, that's the three purposes that this chapter is serving us. We won't get to all those issues. I just want, to, want you aware of how to read your Bible. So the way we're going to look at this chapter, three divisions, the crime, the cover-up, and the catch. The crime, the cover-up, and the catch. So with that, you should be at 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's look at the first one, and that is the crime. Our chapter immediately opens up and informs us that something is wrong. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Think of uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10 we studied. But David remained at Jerusalem. So right there we know something is amiss. The chapter tells us, the author, narrator tells us, hey, it's at springtime. The frozen thaw, has the, the, the snow has melted. The, the land is harder. You can now have warfare. This is when the kings go out for war. But did our king go out to battle? No. But notice he was more than happy to send everyone else, right? He sends Joab. He sends all his servants with him. And then all Israel goes. But he remains at Jerusalem. Nothing good can come of this, right? Let's look at verse 2 and 3. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his siesta, his afternoon nap from his couch. He was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So stop right there. Even in that question, is this not Bathsheba? You can sense the author putting on the lips of the messenger to speak to David as if he's saying, David, if you're going to do this, anyone but her. There's thousands of women in Jerusalem. Anyone but Bathsheba. Because as we know by cross-referencing this chapter with 2 Samuel chapter 23, and we see it also here, this is not just your typical beautiful Jewish woman. This is the daughter of one of David's fiercest soldiers, Eliam. We see that here in this chapter, and we know that in 2 Samuel chapter 23. But we also know that because she's the daughter of Eliam, she is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, David's most trusted counselor. But we also know, not only is she the daughter of Eliam and the granddaughter of Ahithophel, she's the wife of Uriah, one of David's mighty men, his, his secret kind of uh, personal guard that protected the king. So what the messenger is saying is that this, this is Bathsheba, the, the daughter, the granddaughter, the wife of some of your most loyal soldiers and confidants. Don't do this. I mean, He's probably said, don't do this with anyone, but if you're going to do this, certainly not with her. But in this one act of adultery, David just torpedoes not only his own family, not only the families connected with Bathsheba, but as verse 17 tells us, many innocent soldiers die needlessly for David trying to cover up the sin. But as we also know, the entire nation's thrown into chaos for years to come. 
But David, right now, he doesn't see all that. That's what sin does to us, doesn't it? When it gets us in its grasp, nothing else seems to matter. When our lives are controlled by our, 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 our lusts and our sins, we think we're getting what we want all the while, not realizing it's killing ourselves and the people we love. I mean, think about it. I mean, when David woke up from his afternoon nap, he surely wasn't considering to be a conspirator, a murderer, a hypocrite, and a liar, and an adulterer. But once sin gets you in its grip, and unfortunately there's too many of us who can attest to this, it takes you to places you never intended to go. And it keeps you there longer than you wanted to stay. That's what sin does. In the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother James says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In the Arctic, the Inuit people inhabit the same area as an apex predator, the wolf. Now, hunting a wolf in its, on its own terms is almost impossible and almost always deadly. But they found a way to harness the wolf's own weakness against them. There's one thing they cannot resist, blood. And so they've devised this very ingenious method where they would tightly spool baleen, which is um, basically whalebone. And then they would cover it with tons of fat and blood and freeze this thing. And then they would coat this, what was relatively a skeletal hand grenade, in a fresh coat of blood so that the wolves will pick up its scent. And then they merely scatter these things all over the tundra until the wolf comes over and starts eating up these tasty morsels, just gobbling them down, not realizing that they're sealing their own fate. You see, what happens is as the fat and the blood on the, on the skeletal hand grenade digests in the stomach, the baleen unspools and shatters blood, uh, bone, whale bone throughout their stomach and intestines. So all the Inuit have to do is just follow the hemorrhaging wolf until it drops dead in its tracks. If only the wolves would know the price of their lust. If only we knew the price of our own. James says sinful desires bring forth sin, and that sin always brings forth death. What's true of wolves and wayward kings is true of you and I. Right? Sin always takes more than it gives, even as it promises us life. Now let's get back to our text. So the deed is done, and that's that, or so David assumes. Until Bathsheba sends word to him, verse 5, I am pregnant. Imagine King David getting this note. You would think that receiving that note would jolt him out of his, his, his plunging into sin. Maybe from that he will finally confess to Uriah. Maybe that's why he sends for him in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Now if you know this story, you know that's not the case. David is going to engage in trying to cover and hide his sin because he believes he can get away with it. So let's now look at the cover-up here. 
Imagine, first of all, Uriah, who's coming back from the front. Remember, he's fighting the Ammonites. We studied that in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 8 and 10. So he makes the 40-mile trek back to Jerusalem because he's been summoned by the king. It's a two-day journey, one long day by horseback. And he's expecting that there's some kind of special assignment that the king has for him. But look what verse 7 says. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. It's kind of odd. I mean, the king has messengers running back and forth to keep him updated with the, with the war. You could ask one of them. I mean, that's why you called me? Hey, Uriah, so uh, how's Joab? Yeah, the fellas? Things up at the front okay? It doesn't make sense. David is not thinking right. But as we know in chapter, or verses 6 to 13, he has a plan to deceive Uriah. And this is his first attempt to cover up his sin. Look at verses 6 through 13. His plan is simple. Bring Uriah back. Send him home to Bathsheba. Follow him with gifts of food and wine. Spark a romantic evening. One thing leads to the other. Next thing you know, Bathsheba's pregnant, and they all think it's Uriah's. Simple, subtle, done. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. It's a euphemism for take your ease and enjoy yourself. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But if you keep reading verses 9 through 13, you realize that Uriah does not go home to Bathsheba. And when confronted about it, Uriah simply says, Far be it from me to take this ease and comfort when my commander, when my man, most importantly, when the ark of God is a field in battle. See, this Israelite king did not take into account the honor of this Hittite soldier. And so he's going to try again. So David says, okay, Uriah, stay in Jerusalem one more day, and then, hey, join me for another feast tonight. And he gets Uriah sloppy drunk, thinking, I'll send him home, case closed. What does Uriah do? Even in his drunken stupor, Uriah, drunk, still has more integrity than David sober. He refuses to go home, sleeps in front of the castle, guarding the king as well. Things at this point are not going well for David. Covering up his sin is not going to be as easy as he thought. Friends, it never is. If David cannot deceive Uriah, he will betray him. That's what verses 14 and 25 are. First, he's going to take his wife, and now he realizes he needs to take his life. And so that we will get into. Verse 14 and 25 records David's second attempt to cover up his sin. And he'll do anything to cover up his sin, including kill Uriah. Because in Torah, in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for adultery is death. So either David has to die or Uriah has to die to cover this up. Either way, somebody's got to die to cover this sin. And so David writes a note to Joab, his commander-in-chief, And in the note he says, and of of all low things, he gives the note to Uriah, who he knows will not open the note because he has honor. And in this note that Uriah delivers back to the commanding general, David says, get Uriah killed. And Joab, being kind of an unusual character, godly and then mafioso, all kinds of things, doesn't question the order. Maybe a little bit mad that he's getting to kill one of his good fighters, but has Uriah execute or killed. We'll get to that in a little bit. Now at this point, we wish that David knew what we New Testament Christians know. 
that one day a greater than David would die to cover all our sin. And that we would not need to hide, but become, become clean because the price has been paid. Now, to be clear, God's forgiveness does not excuse our sinful choices and our sinful actions. But maybe recognizing that somebody paid the price for our sin might stop us from our headlong plunge into trying to cover it up, causing more problems. As the Bible says here, it's impossible to cover your sin because sin has to be paid for through death. Someone has to die. And Jesus did. So we wouldn't have to. The penalty for sin, any sin, is death. Because sin, no matter how small, is an attack against the holiness of God. Now, you may not have committed adultery. I hope you never do. But have you lusted? Have you lied? Have you hedged the truth? Have you withheld mercy and compassion? Have you bent the rules, closed your eyes, fudged the numbers, right? Have you gossiped? Have you grumbled? Have you been self-centered, self-absorbed, self-righteous, proud, arrogant, stiff-necked, hard-hearted? And I'm just talking about this week. <laughs> All of these, friends, are an attack on the holiness of God. You deserve to die just like me, all of us, for our sin. But that's why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus died to cover my sin. He died to cover your sin. Someone has to die to cover the sin. That's clearly in our text. I mean, if justice means anything, if justice means anything, the evil and the wrong and the wretchedness in the world has to be paid for. And the penalty is death. And according to the scriptures, Jesus paid that penalty with his death upon the cross. He died and did it for sinners like you and me. Sinners like Bathsheba and David and sinners like Uriah. But David right now in 2 Samuel 11, he's really far from hearing this truth. Friends, one of the advantages of being a pastor is obviously I get to spend a lot of time in the Word. But do you just see, and I hope you read, maybe hopefully some of you were thinking about it, just how sin twists us and deforms us. How sin makes the best of us into the worst of us. Have you seen it? I have. I've seen it in my own life. And I see it in the lives of church members all the time. Here, I didn't have time to, to write it in my manuscript, but I, I thought of this this morning. Listen to what he has to say. Lou Priolo, in his wonderful book on, uh, on being a husband. And it has everything to do with our idolatry because the thing that keeps us from being good husbands is our own idolatry and our own desires oftentimes. But this is what he says. We are often blinded to temptation because the sin we are being tempted to commit is something we desire. We want to do that. The desire by which we are enticed seems so natural to us that we may not recognize it as a temptation to sin. The real culprit, think James chapter 1 we just read here, the real culprit is our sinful, wrong, or inordinate desires. Guys, this is why it's so important that your heart is full, not of your own desires and preferences, but the word of God and the spirit of God. Because what the heart most uh, ferociously wants 
The emotions find beautiful, the mind finds reasonable, and the will finds doable. And so we've got to guard our hearts. But David didn't do that. And as I sat thinking about this, um, Friday I was over at working on the sermon at Starbucks. My wife was running some errands. Thinking about David and people. Guys, i got to be honest, I started crying right, right there in Starbucks, man. I told the elders, this has been the most emotional chapter I've ever, I've, I've never cried as much studying scripture as I have studying 2 Samuel 11. And that, does, that, that doesn't mean it's going to be a better sermon. It's just, it was heavy, man. And as I'm sitting there thinking, mired all week in the sin of David and the consequences thereof, and, and having a conversation about somebody who was, used to be a member of our church and is living however they want, completely off the rails from the things of God, even though they still consider themselves a Christian, will drive out of our parking lot, upset at me, the whole bit. So it's heavy on me, you know? So I'm sitting at Starbucks and I started crying. <laughs> I started pretending like I had a hair in my eyes so I'm doing this and then I had to do this and finally I'm sitting there like this because I'm just crying and people at the it was one of those communal tables they're like something's wrong with the guy at the the counter over there somebody do something because this is sin the same guy who put Mephibosheth at his table is the same guy who puts Uriah in his grave And I was like, Lord, if this is David, what chance do I have? What chance do anybody that our church has? What hope do we have? Now, I got hope. Let me give it to you in a little bit. Okay, so put a pin in that. The biblical worldview is so deep in understanding human nature. It is not shallow like the world's understanding where we're either uh, products of our nature or our nurture or all these other things. They're so reductionistic. If you read the Bible, this should be shocking to you, but it shouldn't be surprising, should it? Because we know every human being is made in the image of God. So what does that mean? That's why we're so capable of kindness and mercy and good and, and compassion and so much love and nobility. But because of sin and we rejecting the things of God and embracing our sin, that's why we are so capable of deceit, betrayal, and, and cruelty and hardness of heart. The Bible makes sense of what's happening to David here. And we're not told, although I think some of us wish we were told, how David got here, right? Because this is a far cry from 1 Samuel 17 and 16, where David is the man after God's own heart, where where David is chosen by God to lead his people. And now look at what he's doing. But I wonder if we don't need to be told, because I wish this were unfamiliar territory to us, but I suspect that We all know very well what it's like to go cold to the things of God, right? I mean, if you're a Christian, we all know what it's like to go on autopilot, right? To substitute the living power of the Spirit of God with just years of kind of carefully cultivated Christian civility. And you know how to act, you know how to talk, you know how to play the game, you know how to get through. And and, and I'm not even intending that. You're intending to be deceptive. You just have gone onto this autopilot. Gone is the beauty of repentance and faith. It's been replaced with ritual and habit. Gone is the hunger to get into Bible study so your sin can be exposed, so you can be more like Christ, and you can go out to the world on mission. Now Bible study is like a social gathering where you and your buddies get together on a Thursday night or you and your girlfriends meet on Wednesday night. It's easy to coast. I think we're familiar with how we can go from being a person after God's own heart 
to just being fueled by our own desires. So since we all know that can happen, what hope is there? So, so let me give you some of that hope right now. Here it is. It may seem counterintuitive, but I think it's real. Admit you're prone to it. Admit. And, and that, that, that's the hard thing because you really got to realize, man, I, am no, I have no righteousness. I have no goodness here. I have no, nothing good within me. That sounds familiar. Admit you are prone to do it. Admit that you will pursue sin and ungodliness unless and until the Holy Spirit that God grants you grace otherwise. I'm not saying admit it so you resign yourself to it like, oh, well, I'm going to sin, so I might as well sin. No, I'm saying admit your weakness so you desperately seek his strength. That's how you stop. Notice when David experienced turmoil and persecution and struggle, it made him more godly and leaning on the Lord. But when things were nice and good, he just went on autopilot. And friends, can I say, relatively speaking, we got it nice and good all the time. Right? This is the place everyone wants to come to, South Orange County. It's awesome, right? Like our, our gas stations have water fountains in front of them, right? When I lived in La Habra, the only time water came out from a gas station was a, a water main broke, right? So we got it nice here. And we can go on autopilot. And if you were paying attention we try to help you do this. Do you notice one of the songs we sang? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, when was the last time you prayed that the Lord would hate, help you hate your sin and love his holiness more? Is that a regular part of your prayer uh, lexicon? Lord, help me to hate, not hate other people's sin, right? We're all good at hating everyone else's sin. Lord, help me to hate my sin the way I go lights out on the people around me, the way I withhold compassion or mercy, the way I don't strive against sin and strive for righteousness. Help me to hate that and help me to love your holiness. Friends, if that's not a regular part of your prayer vocabulary, I encourage you this week, make that change. Because we're gonna try and help you by songs like that. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, if you read 2 Samuel 11 and you say, and watching David, oh, I could never do that. Or if you see someone commit sin and you say, oh, I could never do that. Or you hear someone else's failings and sin and you think, well, I could never do that. You've taken your first big step to doing that exact thing. Guarantee, friend. Guarantee. Only those who know it's God's grace and his mercy that prevents them from sin and not their morality, not their willpower, not, not their church attendance, not their Bible studies that they attend, not any asset of their own self-righteousness. Only those who know it is surely God's grace that saves them. Can they sing that hymn like it's meant to be sung? Remember that line? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We just sang it like 20 minutes ago. He doesn't say, oh, to multiple, multiple Bible studies, a debtor. No. He doesn't say, oh, to my good moral deeds, a debtor. He says, oh, to grace, a debtor. Daily, every day, I'm constrained to be. Let your grace, a fetter is like these ironclad handcuffs. Like, let your grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Man, the way you can avoid being David or, right, I, I hope you're not thinking because I didn't commit adultery, there's nothing to say to me. This is all of us because we're all trying to cover some sin. I hope you're saying, hey, 
I can do this, that, that's a step away from doing it. Now, let me give you some kind of practical tips here. As you're thinking, why would David think he can actually hide his sin? Here's six reasons I think David thought he could hide his sin. And I think it's six reasons we think we can hide our sin. Number one, because we haven't immediately felt sin's consequence. Right? We, we think we can get away with it. You will. Oh, you will. I've got stories, but I'm not going to make a very long sermon, so I won't get into that. Number two, uh, we don't think that sin is that big a deal. It is. You just look at the cross. That's how big a deal sin is. Three, we don't truly believe God is holy. He is. We live in a culture, even within the church, we kind of poo-poo holiness. Now, God is holy. Four, we think we're smarter than we are and we can get away with it. We aren't. I mean, David's the king and he's not that bright here. Five, we think God doesn't see. He does. And six, we just plain old don't want to give up our sin. We should. Friends, which of these six reasons do you lie to yourself with? And, and to be clear, you don't consciously say this, right? You don't say, I really don't think God is holy, so I'm going to do this. No. But functionally, the way we live, which of these lies do you tell yourself? I know which ones I tell myself. All right? Do you? And just so you know, um, they're all of them, basically. So can we cover our sin? This is where sometimes um, chapter and verse divisions aren't helpful because if you just read chapter 11, like in, you know, like you're just reading it, the answer you might come to that question might shock you because the answer is, yeah, we can. I mean, after all, didn't David cover his sin? Look at um, verse, I'm going to back up to verse 14. I'll read a couple verses and then jump to 17. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Go down to verse 17. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell, which means they died. Uriah the Hittite also died. In fact, as if to make the point, in verses 14 to 26, six times the narrator says Uriah is dead or Uriah died. Like to make the point, he's gone. And if you read verse 25, it really does seem David is successful. When he hears of this tragedy that all these men, innocent men died, but then when he hears Uriah is dead, he says, ah, do not let this matter displease you. Remember, this is the same king that was concerned about the shame of his soldiers just a couple chapters ago and, and took care of them at expense to the capital. And now he's like, ah, now the sword devours one and tomorrow the sword devours another. Completely callous. Verse 26, Uriah is gone and no one is the wiser. By all accounts, David seems like the gracious king who takes in Uriah's widow. Nine months later, she bears a son. And that's that. Can David cover up his sin? It seems like he can. Can you cover up your sin? I'll bet it seems like you can. So Christian, if you thought my answer was going to be that you cannot cover up your sin, we might be wrong here. After all, David was successful. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is his wife. Not only did he cover his lust, his adultery, and his murder, he actually comes out 
looking like the gracious, hesed-giving king that he's always been, taking in Bathsheba, and to boot, nine months later, he has a son for it all. Nine months have passed, and he's in the clear. But I do have one more point in my sermon. There's a catch. It's the last sentence in our chapter. Ten words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Wow, ten powerful telling words. It's the only time, by the way, if you notice, it's the only time that God is mentioned in this chapter. In this horrible chapter full of betrayal, lust, murder, deceit, and falsehood. It's there like a, this definitive statement. Everyone feels like David's like, yes, I got away with this. It looks like he did. But did he actually? Amidst all this evil, where it doesn't seem like God is real, kind of like our own world sometimes, we're reminded, oh, no, no, he's, he's, he is. He sees. He knows, and he's not happy. And he will act. We don't know how here in chapter 11. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6, right? He said the same thing. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man or woman sows, that will that man or woman reap. I think Abraham Lincoln said this. I'm kind of twisting it. So uh, he said, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and you can fool all the people some of the time, but you can never fool God once. Friend, however small, however big your sin, turn from it. You've been warned. God is warning us here through this chapter. You think you can get away with it? You think he doesn't see? You think he doesn't know the damage and destruction your sin is causing? Whatever it might be, your lust, your anger, your pornography, your pride, your hubris, your defensiveness, your prickliness, your immaturity. You don't think that's destroying people around you? It does, and he sees, and he's not happy. Now, I can't end on that tone. <laughs> Although I kind of want to. That was actually the original ending to the sermon until God reminded me, hey, be gracious too. So let me also end on this, saying this. Friends, there is really, there is a way to cover your sin, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a way to cover our sin. And that's the blood of Christ. Because someone has to die. Somebody's got to die. So Jesus did, so you wouldn't have to. And we don't have to try and cover it up and hide and pretend we're better than we are. We can admit our weaknesses, our shortcomings. As James says in James chapter 5, we can confess our sins to one another. Because they've all been paid for. And we can grow as a result of that. But because the price of sin is so high, friends, you're not going to want to live in it anymore. It's just not worth it. In the uh, pastoral prayer, Jeff prayed from Psalm 32, and the answer to how this unwinds is in Psalm 32, verse 5. And by the way, this is David writing this. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, here's the good news. If David, David, who we just got through studying, could come back to this place, so could any one of us. But it comes first from realizing, I can't hide this any longer. And it comes to you acknowledging your sin and asking God for forgiveness. 
That requires an understanding of saying, I I don't trust to these things anymore. I am a sinner. What the Bible says is true, but God will forgive and love me. I said at the very beginning, God's omniscience would cause us great fear because he knows everything about you. But here's the great thing about the gospel. Like, it's more befuddling than what we've studied about David. God knows everything about you, and he still loves you. Go figure. He knows everything. Isn't isn't that the definition of wonderful marital intimacy? That our wife or our husband knows us, and they still love us. God knows you, everything you've done, and he loves you still. Jack Miller's famous quote, we'll end with this. We are worse than we ever imagined and more love than we ever believed. That's the gospel. Next week, we'll see how this unwinds in David's life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a hard and somber chapter as we study this morning. But it reminds us that even if the king can fall, how much more vigilant, how much more desperate ought we to be for your grace? And so, Lord, we ask for your grace right now. And we know part of that is to realize, to admit what Scripture says. We are wretched and our desires are twisted. So, Holy Spirit, would you so kindly just change our desires? Scripture says you'll give us the desires of our heart. I know a lot of times people think that means if I want a car, you'll give it to me. No, it means that you will give us new desires in our hearts. So we pray you would do that so that we would not ever know 2 Samuel 11, and we would just know the Hesed love that we studied in chapters 9 and 10. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.